So as uh, Peg said, we're doing a little bit of a tour. We were down in Syracuse for three days, and then we drove uh, from Syracuse to Detroit, Michigan. So we were in Detroit yesterday, up here today, and then we head back to Canada tomorrow uh, for a day in London, Ontario, and then North Bay, and then Ottawa. How many of you attended the New Evangelization Summit last year, last May? Okay, so about maybe a dozen of you. So the New Evangelization Summit's a conference that, that I organize every year in Ottawa, and then what we do is we broadcast it out to host sites around the world. So last year we had about almost 65 of these host sites. And Father John and Michelle were two of the speakers that, that we brought in. I had met them two years before. Every year I'd do a little speaking trip to England. And I'd gone and, and given a talk and I, I met them. And then I went back the next year and they came and they were um, attended a bit of a longer program that I was offering. And they were really, really geared up about this uh, Genesis model and some of the work that they were doing. So I thought that I would bring them over to the New Evangelization Summit and have them speak and share a bit about, uh, about what was happening in their diocese uh, and what they had been learning about evangelization. But what really inspired me was that they, they stayed a few days after the summit. The summit is held on a Saturday. So Sunday morning they came to my parish for Mass, but I had some other plans uh, Sunday afternoon. So we decided we were gonna, I was going to drop them off downtown and they'd kind of wander around. And I thought they were going to just kind of have a day of, you know, being tourists in Ottawa and seeing Parliament buildings and the cathedral and the river and the canal and the art galleries and all the, the fun things people travel to Ottawa to see. But instead, they spend the afternoon evangelizing. And I remember thinking, you know, I've organized this new evangelization summit for five years, and we've, we've had, you know, you name them, we've had them come and speak, all, you know, the great Catholic speakers on evangelization, uh, you know, and they've just been amazing. But this is the first time that we've had people come if you're still getting an echo, eh? Let me see if... Uh, is that, does that sound okay? I'm hearing an echo, but maybe it's just up here. Um, it was the first time that our speakers haven't just been up there talking about evangelization, they've been actually doing it. And that's what's really struck me about the work that they've been involved in, is that it didn't start as a, you know, a thesis or a dissertation. It didn't start from reading books and writing essays. It started from them just evangelizing and from just evangelizing, they developed this, this model for how we can share our faith one-on-one. -on -one. Now, you know, I, I actually studied just down the street. I studied at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit, and I did my license in the new evangelization. So there's nothing wrong with studying the work of evangelization, trying to come to a better understanding of it and being able to teach about it. But what we really need in the church today is we need Catholic men and women, lay ordained, who are just evangelizing who are just sharing their faith in Jesus Christ with their neighbors, with their friends, with their co-workers, with their dentist, with the person down the street. That everywhere we go, Jesus is inviting us to bring his good news into the world. So I'm really excited to be able to travel with them. They've become really good friends of mine. And they are just, for me personally, who spends my life in the world of evangelization, they're just tremendously inspiring Okay, so, uh, so Michelle, Michelle ha Michelle's um, got a fun little van that she drives around back in England. This is just one side of it. It's got decals and stickers all over the place with pictures of Jesus on it and Joan of Arc and powered by the Eucharist and all sorts of things. Um, she's a little bit wild that way. She gets honked at a lot. Uh, Father John says it's more for driving than her decals. So I don't know. But Michelle is, uh, you know, they live in the very south of England, which isn't known for being like the Bahamas, but they don't really know what snow is. So she was a bit nervous 
She was excited about coming to America to preach the gospel. She wasn't excited about it being in February. She keeps saying our next trip is going to be out to Australia. So I don't know if that's going to happen. So as soon as I booked a flight for her, she, came, she went out to the Goodwill store and she bought herself a nice warm coat. <laughs> she wanted to make sure it was good enough. And finally, thank you, Saginaw. You're the first place we've had cold weather. It was like 42 and sunny in Syracuse the whole time. Like we were walking around without coats on. So she's quite amused by all this. Father John, on the other hand, just looks like this and says, Oh, Michelle. Oh, Michelle. <laughs> Wow, but Father, so Father John is the vicar for evangelization for his diocese. He's also uh, a parish priest, and um, this is what we're going to, oh, this is, this is my family, so that's me up at the top. This is actually just last week, we were out skating, so that's my wife at the top, and then uh, the taller one is my daughter Therese, who's uh, six years old, almost seven, and then uh, this one is Anna Banana, she's my little precocious four-year-old, and then if you can see down here, we got, he's, he's kind of hidden. But that's uh, Francis. So Francis is uh, 20 months old. Uh, we homeschool. So this, we, in, this, in the fall, my, my wife made um, aprons with them. And uh, now they're doing cooking, a little bit of baking. So they've been baking up a storm for the last month and a half. And then that's the next one that's on the way. So, yeah. All right. So that, he or she will be joining us in uh, January, in um, in July, so we're thrilled about that. Hey, and there's Father John, Michelle, and I getting ready for, uh, for our mission together. We were over in England, in London, together in the fall. Okay, so this is what we're going to be doing today. Uh, I'm going to kind of give an introductory talk. It's going to go for about another 40 minutes, and then we're going to take a break. And then we're going to have two main sessions, one before lunch, one after lunch, and then we're going to have a little bit of a wrap-up session. So my first introductory session is just kind of set the stage for the day. When we talk about evangelization, what is it that we're talking about? The second thing we're going to look at is uh, just a brief history of how Father John and Michelle got to where they are, what God has done in their life to bring them to this point. Then they're going to be looking at what they call the maxims. Now, the maxims are just kind of guiding principles that they really apply to all of the work that we do in evangelization, but they really set the foundation for the Genesis model. So we're going to go into this in some depth. Now, if you find yourself kind of like itching to get going and say, okay, that's great, but how do we actually do this? I promise you they will get there when they get to part C, which is the model. But it's important to spend time in the maxims because without understanding our, our, the principles and our approach to evangelization, the technique or the, the, the way we have one-on-one spiritual encounters and spiritual conversations, it, it doesn't kind of have a context for it. So the maxim set that context, and then the model is just a very concrete step-by-step, how do we have one-on-one conversations with people that we meet? What, what's the dynamics of these conversations? And Father John and Michelle, because they've been doing for this for a long time, have all sorts of stories. So all that they're going to be teaching you is going to be illustrated by stories. But this is the other thing that we realize is that we can get all jazzed up about evangelization and want to go share the gospel, but for a lot of us, we feel like we're alone. Now, you know, I, it's funny to say that to, you know, a room that's packed with 160 people. But when we go back to our, own, to our home parishes or we go back to our living rooms or we go back to our offices, we can feel like we're the only one. And it's, you know, we're not all like Francis Xavier. You know, Ignatius sends him off. You know, the, the Pope made him 
basically said, take care of Asia for me. So he's like, okay, well, I guess I'll just do that. And off he goes and hops around through India and, you know, Japan and Malaysia and India and off, dies off the coast of China. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because even Francis Xavier experienced tremendous loneliness in his mission. He, that he deeply, deeply missed his Jesuit brothers back in Rome. And he knew he would never see them again. Now, he continued on the mission. He knew this is where God's put me. This is what he's invited me to do. This is what I'm going to do. But most of us, most of us wouldn't be able to do that. Most of us need to be with other people who share the same heart, who share the same mind, who are trying to evangelize with us. And so this is what this parish evangelization team is. And I, I just want to say at the start, it's not what most of us think it is. This isn't, the purpose of these parish evangelization teams isn't to go out and evangelize, although there's a dimension to that. They exist for you. And they're going to describe how, we get, how they gather people together to share their experiences of evangelizing, how that encourages people and strengthens people, gives them new ideas, and keeps them focused on the mission. And then we're going to just have, at the end, we're going to have a little where do we go from here? What's kind of some next steps that we can take concretely if we want to be able to, if we want to begin to live out our evangelical vocation a little bit more uh, explicitly? Okay, y'all with me so far? All right, here we go. Now, Every talk that I give, and if you've heard me at the summit, you've probably heard me say this three times, or if you were at Relit, you've heard it, or if you're doing anything else I do, I always start with the exact same thing. It's the question, what is evangelization? Because if you ask 10 Catholics what evangelization is, you get about eight different answers. And I think one of the things that's holding us back is that we don't have clarity on what the church means when she speaks of evangelization. Not only do we not have clarity, but for the average Catholic... We actually have a mistaken notion of evangelization which is counterproductive, that holds us back. It actually makes it more difficult for, for us to do it. So let's first look at what it is, and then we'll talk about what it isn't for a few minutes. If we want to understand evangelization, we have to understand good news. And the first thing about good news is that when we have good news, we want to share it. We want to tell people about it. We just can't help but speak about it. I can remember, you know, after we had our first daughter, Trez, I said to my wife, you know, when you get pregnant again, why don't we just keep it as our little family secret for a while? Like, wouldn't it be neat for a couple weeks if we, it just we knew? She's like, oh, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. So then she finds out she's pregnant with number two. And about 15 minutes later, she says, um, can I call my mom? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So, and then I'm like, only if I can call my mom. So we call our moms. So then after we have the second one, I said, you know, wouldn't it be really neat? When you get pregnant, if we just, just keep it as our family secret, like we'd be the only ones that would know, wouldn't that be great? Oh, that'd be so good. So we find out she's pregnant number three, and about five minutes after, she said, can I call my mom? <laughs> so I didn't even try with, with, the, with the baby. I'm just like, as soon as she's pregnant, I'm like, go call your mom. Because she just, you're so excited, you just want to share with people. You can't help but tell other people the good news that you have. I have this little boy that lives next door to us. He's four years old, and he's had to have a lot of dental work. So after his last three-hour trip to the dentist, his dad took him to get a Big Mac. Now, when you're four years old, you can get a Big Mac, and your mom's a health freak. It's a big, that's what my dad did. You're, it's a big deal. He was so excited. He wanted, I Mr. Dop to him. He couldn't wait. Mr. Dop, Mr. Dop, guess what? My dad bought me a Big Mac. Wow. He just wants to share the good news, and we're like that with good news. When we have it, we want to share it. There's a lady at... 
one of our talks in Syracuse, and she was saying her daughter graduated from nursing school or college, or whatever you would call it, six months ago, passed her exams, just got a job. She said, everywhere I go, everyone I meet, I tell them, oh, my daughter, she graduated, she's a nurse now, because she's just so excited about it. Now, imagine that you went home, and you won a million dollars on the lottery ticket tonight. Well, you, you want to be careful who you tell, okay? <laughs> but imagine you did. Would, would you tell your spouse? You know, imagine, imagine you didn't tell them. You just, all of a sudden, you know, there's nicer cars in the driveway, and, there's, and they're just like, where, from where cometh all this? Oh, I, did I not tell you? Of course you would tell them. But we don't just share good news because we want other people to rejoice with us. Sometimes... We share good news because we want them to receive what we've received. So to extend the McDonald's analogy, imagine you were driving in this morning, and you went and you got a coffee at McDonald's, and you found out that today only, McDonald's was selling Big Macs for five cents each. You would have been a missionary when you got in here. You would have been going, interrupting all the conversations. Excuse me, hey, can I have that mic for a second? You'd be up here. You'd be announcing the good news. And you'd be doing it not just because it's like, look at me, I, got, you know, I ate eight Big Macs for breakfast. No, it'd be, it'd be like, hey, guys, guess what? There's big, go get Big Macs. Go, they're five cents each. Go fill up. Fill your trunk with them. Because we want other people to receive the good news that we've had. Good news by its very nature wants to be given away. Okay. This is what the word evangelize means. It literally, the word gospel, the, liter- the word evangelize, they come from a Greek word that literally mean good news. And it makes sense that the gospel writers would use, like even think of that, the gospel writers, the writers of good news, that they would call the message the good news because it is the good news. It's the definitive good news. Pope Francis said, what is the good news? He said, the good news is that Jesus has come to save us from what? He said, from sin, sorrow, inner emptiness, and loneliness. Is there anybody here that has ever in their life experienced sin, sorrow, inner emptiness, and loneliness? There's a few. Wow, you guys, you guys are pretty happy here in Saginaw. I think I should move here. I bet you all have. I bet in the last week you've all had at least one profound experience of sin, sorrow, inner emptiness, and loneliness. See, the world tells us that it can take care of that. It'll fill you up. It'll give you everything you need. Honor, wealth, power, pleasure. If we just get enough of those things, then we'll be happy, right? But you know, the thing about having a million dollars, nobody wants a million because your neighbor has two. If you have two, you don't want two. You want five. No house is ever nice enough. No one ever bought a car and says, now I am fully satisfied. I mean, for a day, like, you know, you get a nice Ford Mustang or something, and, you know, for three days, you're driving around and top down, you're like, this is great, and then it's like, oh, now what, right? My brother has this beautiful house. My brother's house, the garage, I'm not kidding you, or as Michelle would call it, the garage, the garage in the house is bigger than my house. My entire house would fit inside of his garage. His house is beautiful, custom design, it was, it's gorgeous. So about two years after it was built, my brother said to me, you know, Michael, I love this house. But you know what I wish would happen? I wish somebody would come and offer to buy my house from me 
so we could rebuild the exact same house, but I just, I change this, and I make this room bigger, and this room this, and this room there, just, you know, because it's not quite perfect, right? It's not, it doesn't quite do everything you want it to do. But that's like life. Like, we get things we think, I mean, they are goods. Honor, wealth, power, pleasure, those are all goods in themselves. But none of them satisfies the human heart. Why? Because we've been made for God. Our hearts are too big for those things. None of those is enough. And we keep coming back to them thinking, well, maybe this time, maybe this time. Maybe this will take care of the sorrow and the inner emptiness and the loneliness. I, I just saw in the news the other week, you know, or maybe it was earlier this week, Jeff Bezos from Amazon. Did you see the house that he just bought? $165 million. Right? That's probably more than all of us have combined. But you know, he, he also, what happened to him last year? You know, he cheated on his wife, separated, had a mistress, has a different mistress. I'm certain there's sin, well, I'm certain there's sin, but also sorrow, inner emptiness, loneliness in his life. You think a $165 million house is going to make you happy? Of course not. And there's nothing, I, don't misinterpret me, there's nothing wrong with the things that's worth. There's nothing wrong with a, you know, a nice trip to Florida, and there's nothing wrong with a car that works and a comfortable home. There's nothing wrong with those things, but the problem is we put our hope in them. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is what actually satisfies the longing of the human heart. That's the work of evangelization, to bring that good news into the world. Okay, So why wouldn't it be good news? Some of us don't experience Christianity as good news. I, I think sometimes all of us can be a little bit like that. Like It can feel like a duty. It can feel like a burden. When we think, oh, it's just about following the rules, or it's just about doing the right things. But what a, it's, what a shallow interpretation of Christianity. When Christianity fundamentally is an invitation to friendship, to communion with the all-perfect, all-knowing, all-good, all-loving God. That's what Christianity is about. It's about a passionate friendship with Jesus. And there's no good news better than that. Now, one of the things that holds us back in evangelizing is we are deeply concerned with respecting the freedom of the other person. None of you wants to violate another person's freedom. And so what the world has told us evangelization is that evangelization is forcing our religion, forcing our faith, jamming it down people's throats. And we all say, well, if that's what evangelization is, then I don't want to do that. And rightly so. John Paul II said that when we evangelize, we propose we don't impose. It's an offering. It's an invitation. Imagine somebody walked in here right now, and they said they had a, they had a plate full of donuts, and they walked up to the table, Boston cream donuts, the best donuts in the world, with sprinkles on top <laughs> and extra sugar on it. And they came up and they said, Allison, would you like a donut? You said, how dare you impose your donuts on me? You are so intolerant. I am a free, sovereign individual. Would you leave me? No, nobody would say that. You'd either say, wow, can I, you know, yes, please. Or I'd say, could I have a couple? <laughs> or, you know, if you're, or you'd say, well, no, thanks, but no thanks. How many of you would feel offended if somebody offered you a donut today? There's a couple. You, those of you that are... <laughs> Everybody here on keto feel it would be offended, okay? But everyone else would be like, thank you very much. We confuse 
evangelization and proselytization. Big words, nothing fancy here. Proselytization is trying to make converts through some use of coercion or force, economic, social, political, it doesn't matter what it is. It's, if you want to marry my daughter, you better become a Catholic. It's that sort of thing. I mean, it can happen a thousand different ways. And the church has rejected that. Why? Because the goal of evangelization is conversion. So John Paul II said, conversion is accepting by a personal decision the saving sovereignty of Christ. It's saying yes to the invitation of Jesus. But we can't say yes if we're not free. So the very work of evangelization requires the freedom of the other. And that's one of, there are several reasons, but that's one of the reasons that the church rejects proselytization. Coercing, manipulating, forcing, tricking, any of that. But oftentimes, Catholics, when we hear the word evangelization, we think proselytization. Have you seen the meme? There's like a meme with this guy, and he's kind of got this funny look, and it says, um, I don't think that word means what you think it means. You know, people sometimes use a word, and you're like, yeah, I don't think you meant to say that. You think you're saying this, but you're really saying that. This can happen with evangelization. We say the word evangelization. What people hear is proselytization, and they're not interested. But it's not that there's anything wrong with evangelization. The issue is that we have to reclaim the church's understanding of it as this offer of good news. Everybody got me so far? Okay. All right. All right. So when we evangelize, there's a few different kind of dimensions, components to it. The first is the witness of life. This is the, this is the message that is proclaimed by the way that we live. Catholics are kind of big on this. Catholics like to say, you know, I'll just kind of live a good Catholic life. And it's true that this is part of it. And Bishop Barron makes the argument, I think he's right, that the conversion of the Roman Empire in the first few centuries of Christianity was largely because of witness of life. That the life that the Christians lived in the early centuries was radically different than the life of the average person within the empire. And it wasn't just different, it was attractive. It was good. To love your enemies. To care for the sick. That husbands couldn't just leave their wives because they had a cute secretary. In the Roman Empire, for the first two weeks of life, a child could be left out in the wilderness to die if the father didn't want them, namely if they were a girl. And the Christians would literally go out at night and collect these newborn children and raise them as their own. And the Romans began to see this. And they were intrigued by it. It raised questions in them. Paul VI says, witness raises questions in those that are curious. And that opens up the door for the proclamation of the good news, of the gospel. gospel. The proclamation comes in two forms. Testimony, that's what God has done in your life. It's subjective. It's my experience of the good news. It's not subjective that we make up who Jesus is. It's my own encounter with Jesus. And each of us has a unique and particular and beautiful encounter with the living God. And sharing that with others. And then, of course, the kerygma, which is the basic message of Christianity. That Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. That he desires friendship with us. But finally, the last dimension of evangelization is an invitation. We have to invite people to say yes. We sometimes think that to become a great Catholic, we just have to know lots of stuff. And I can promise you, there are Catholics that know much more than any of us 
that could recite the scriptures, that have read the catechism, they've read everything every saint has written, you know, they've read the council documents, all the councils, they know it all, but they don't believe. You can read the Bible but not believe it. The Imitation of Christ, which is my favorite book, you know, it's an absolute classic. Until recently, it was the best-selling Christian book of all time. And it's just an absolute, absolute spiritual genius throughout it. But his first, the first page, he says, you can know the scriptures by heart, and you can speak eloquently on both the Trinity. But if you're displeasing to the Trinity, it means nothing. In other words, we can have it all in our head. We can know everything. But that's not what Jesus wants. What Jesus wants, he wants it in our heart. He wants us to love him. Now, there's a place for knowledge. When I was studying at Sacred Heart, I used to go to St. Cyril and Methodius Church in Detroit. I don't know if any of you have ever been there. It's a phenomenal church. They have multiple priests hearing confessions four times a day. It was incredible. When I went there, I'm sure he's dead now because there was a priest that would hear my confession. And he was, I think he was like 95, and he looked about 20 years older. And he would sit there in the confession like this, but he was just whole. Does anyone know who I'm talking about? Know the name of that priest? Anyway, he was amazing. And he would say, he'd say the same thing every time. Say, you have to pray, Jesus, I want to know you so that I may love you. You need to pray, Jesus, I want to know you so that I might love you. We cannot love what we do not know. So it's good to know about Jesus, but it's even better to love Jesus. The work of evangelization is an invitation to a love affair, to give ourselves fully and completely over to him. Okay. Now, you've all heard in the council documents, the Second Vatican Council, about the universal call to? That's right. You've all heard the call to holiness. The church always believed this. This is not something new. This is something we've always believed as Catholics, but it was re-emphasized and made explicit and beautifully expressed in Lumen Gentium. And what does it remind us of? That every one of us is called to be a saint. Now, we may, not, you know, we may not be canonized. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. But the heights of holiness is for you. I had a spiritual director who was from Italy. He'd be about 75 now. When he joined the seminary, his mom said, it's so good you're going to go be a priest because now you can be holy. <laughs> well, good. He can be holy being a priest. But I'm, I remember thinking about her. Like she came, They had a big family. There were six kids in the family. They were poor, rural. And it's like... Hmm, I wonder if she had opportunities for holiness. You know, raising six kids, being poor, you know. It's everywhere. All of us have these opportunities. We look at the great saints and we say, isn't that nice that Jesus favored them? Jesus favors you. And he's not going to make you into St. Therese or Mother Teresa or John Vianney or John the Baptist or St. Paul or Padre Pio. He's not going to make you any of those. He's going to make you into you. He's going to make you into the saint that he wanted you to be. And if I die without being a saint, it's my fault. It's because I haven't opened my heart up radically enough to him. He's, Jesus is offering it to us. I, so I just turned 40 this past year. And about every five years, the Lord inspires a pious thought in my mind. It doesn't happen often, but I try to pay attention when it does. And I had a pious thought right around my 40th birthday. And I know it wasn't for me. I know it was from the Lord. And it was a prayer he put in my heart. And I was praying one morning... And the prayer was, Lord, please don't let me waste the next 40 years the way I have wasted the first 40. Like the Lord has given us so many graces. He's so generous. 
you know, giving himself in his very body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. And the gift of his mercy in the sacrament of reconciliation. And, you know, the opportunity to dialogue and commune with him in prayer. And the, the witness and the intercession of the saints. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to study theology. I mean, my life has just been one blessing after the other. And I look. I look at what the saints were able to, the, the intimacy they were able to experience with the Lord. And I say, like, it, you can make an excuse when you're 23 or 24. But it's like, I'm 40 now. Like, it's time to get going. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not a kid anymore. It's time to open my heart up radically to him. Because he has something indescribable for me. And he has the same thing for you. Think of your favorite saint. Think of the saint you just love. Jesus wants you to be holier than them. Jesus has more. Jesus has as much for you as he had for them. It's just a matter of how radically will we open ourselves up to his vision. Here's the amazing thing. The saints are the happiest people that ever lived. Now, we don't think that because we're like, really? They were persecuted and they fasted and they did vigils and they were misunderstood and, you know, some of them were, you know, martyred. Really? They were the happy? Yes. Because on the outside, they lived the crucifixion, but inside, inside, they lived the resurrection. And the only analogy I can think of for, that I've tasted of this is having children. Children make you suffer. <laughs> Now, for all the 20-year-olds here, because there's a few here, I know you think your parents are dumb and mean, but they're not. They have suffered for you. But the other truth is you have brought them joy beyond anything in this world. There is nothing that has been more difficult in my life than those little munchkins I showed you. But the joy. You know, you're up all night. You know, I mean, I slept eight hours last night. Before I got married, I couldn't imagine ever not sleeping eight hours. Do you know how often I get to sleep eight hours now with, you know, three young munchkins? Yeah, zero. But, but, you know, so there's suffering there, but there's such joy in that. Because we are meant to give our lives away. We're meant to spend our lives. And not like pour ourselves out like we don't count. But it's the great mystery that Jesus reveals. That's a grain of wheat falls and dies or remains of a single grain. Remember where he says, he will give back to us 30-fold or 30, 60, 100-fold in return. The saints experience that. For every teeny tiny little bit of offering they made to Jesus, he gives them a hundredfold in return. Okay. So we all know the universal call to holiness, but I want to be honest, I'm a bit disappointed in all of you. Because I said the Second Vatican Council gave us the universal call to, and you all said holiness. And I was desperately hoping that somebody would have also recognized that the Second Vatican Council called all of us to. That's right. And the language isn't quite as explicit as it is for holiness, but it's very clear, and it's in multiple places. What does this mean? It means that we are given a vocation to evangelize. First of all, to the church. Again, there's not a lot of clarity on this. You ask 100 Catholics, or even 100 non-Catholics, what does the Catholic church exist to do? You're going to get all sorts of different answers. Now, everybody knows exactly what Amazon exists to do. They know what the FBI exists to do. They know what McDonald's exists to do. They know what Starbucks exists to do. But we're not clear on what the church that we've spent our whole life in, what's the fundamental reason for her existence? It's mission. It's to make disciples. This, this is basically how it unfolded. So Jesus, you know, all salvation history, Jesus comes, crucified, rises from the dead, and he's about to leave to go back to the Father, and he says, oh my goodness. He says, but the salvation I've just won, how is it going to be made known in all of space and all of time? 
Like, how are people going to know? How are people going to be repent and believe? How are they going to be baptized and be saved? Because I'm going back to be with the Father. So then Jesus says, well, I've had these guys that I've been camping with for the last three years. And they're getting their fishing lines ready. But why don't I just send them out? So they're like, they're, they're ready to go back fishing. I mean, it's been a great camping trip. It's been a lot of fun. And Jesus is about to ascend. But right before he ascends at the last minute, he says, oh, guys, one more thing. One more, just one more thing. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus commissions them to make his salvation known and available for all of space and time. That's the mission Jesus gave to the church. Our parishes, our diocese first of all, but then our parishes participate in that one mission. I mean, I've been in parishes and they don't know what they exist to do. So then they spend $15,000 on a consultant and they come up with a mission statement that says something like, we are a nice welcoming community that does kind things and has nice carpet. <laughs> Great. Awesome. I, I, there's a parish I was at in Montreal. They had a parish hall that was at least twice, probably, probably four times the size of this room. And this parish was known as having the best flea market in the entire city. And that's all they did. And this, this hall was jam-packed with, with junk. And a new priest came in and he said, I'm not sure we should keep doing this flea market thing. And the parishioners were aghast. This is what we do. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we could have flea markets. Jesus died on the cross so that souls might be saved. That our world might be transformed in him. So that's the call of the church. But we can't say, oh, great. Well, the, I want to, first, first of all, thank the bishop for joining us today. It's fantastic. So we think, well, great. Mission of the church. I hope the bishop's listening. He can just take care of that. <laughs> yeah. And he's thinking, I hope you guys are listening so you can take care of that. Because we've got 5,000 bishops. We've got 300,000 priests. And we've got a billion lay people. And the mission of the church is his mission. And it's Father's mission and Father's mission and it's your mission. Pope Benedict said, in virtue of your baptism, you have an inherent missionary vocation. Has anyone here been baptized? Put up your hand if you've been baptized. Okay. I see a few hands down. We have a bishop here. We'll take care of that over lunch. It's really easy. Don't worry. We'll have a great party. Be a lot of fun. Okay. If you've been baptized, you're called to mission. Now, this is how we often look at it. We look at what's going on in the parish. So we have the one group, that the choir. We have youth ministry. We have outreach to the poor. We have the pro-life group. We have the evangelization people. And we have the Marian prayer group. And we look at all those. We say, thanks be to God for all those things. Those are fantastic. Isn't that wonderful? You know, I can't really sing, so I'm not going to join the choir. And youth, I'm not really sure about that. You know, I'm, you know, whatever. I don't understand them. Evangelization, that's just not my thing. That's just not my thing. So I will be, I'll be involved in, you know, whatever, vacuuming or decorating or whatever, some faith form, whatever it is, something. I'll, be, I'll do something else. And isn't it great? Thanks be to God that he's given us those people that are committed to evangelization. They can take care of that and I'll take care of something else. But see, that, that treats evangelization as just one thing among many. But it's not. It's, the, it's for every baptized Christian. Think about it this way, to go back to holiness. Imagine you said, imagine I said, Imagine I said, guys, the bishop would kick me out if I said this, but imagine if I said, I love being Catholic. I love everything about being Catholic. I want to be a great saint. But the thing is, I'm just not into prayer. Like, prayer is just not my thing. 
So I don't pray, you know, and since the Mass is a great prayer of the church, I don't go to Mass, but I'm all in. I'm all in. I just, it's just not my thing. It's just not my cup of tea. You'd all kind of say, but Michael, you, you can't do that because prayer is a necessary, essential part of being a Christian. I mean, if being a Christian is about being in communion and friendship with Jesus, we have to commune with him. We have to speak with him. We have to dialogue with him. It'd be like me saying, I have a great marriage, but my wife and I never talk. Now, there may be some of you here that say, boy, you know what? Maybe we should try that for a few days. I wouldn't mind if they talked a little bit less sometimes. You can't have a great marriage if you never communicate. Impossible. You can't be a saint if you don't pray. You can't be living the fullness of your vocation as a Christian if you're not sharing Jesus Christ with others. Now, we all do that in different ways, right? Like, we are the body of Christ. There's different members. So we're not all Francis Xavier going on, you know, to bring the gospel to the other side of the world. We're not all, you know, the early Jesuits coming over to North America to bring the gospel to the, to the Hurons. And we're not all, you know, Padre, we're not, take any saint, it doesn't matter. But we are who we are. Our vocation is right here. Your mission territory is your life. And God has made you perfect for the mission he has for you. He's given you everything you need. He's given you all the gifts and the abilities and the talents and the personality. He's given you everything you need for what he's calling you to do. And we all need to participate in that. See, there is a piece of the kingdom that for all of eternity, God the Father puts your name on. And he has no plan B. Jesus doesn't do plan Bs. He has one plan. And that plan for that piece of the kingdom is you. And we, sometimes we can feel overwhelmed by this. We think, Lord, it's too much. It's a, it's a duty. It's a burden. Think about this analogy. If God wanted, he could have had new babies arrive from a stork. Every three years, you, the doorbell rings. You open the door. Oh, shoot, I forgot to track of time. Wow. <laughs> Call up your spouse at work. Guess what? It's been three years. Oh, yeah. Another baby. Great. Isn't that wonderful? But instead, God chose to include men and women in the creation of human life. God's the creator, but we become co-creators with him. And that's beautiful. That's amazing that I can look at Therese and say, boy, she's a nice one that the bird dropped off. No, she is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone that I have co-created her with my wife and with God. That is an amazing thing. It's the same thing with evangelization. God could choose to sovereignly appear, preach the gospel himself, invite people to conversion, but he wants you to be a co-creator with him, a co-creator in new spiritual life. He wants you to be instrumental in people coming to know and love him. Cardinal Newman has a a wonderful, wonderful quote. He was just canonized recently. We've been entrusting this whole trip to him. And he said, God has created me to do him some definite service. He has committed some work to me, which he has not committed to another. I have my mission. Now, there is one mission, and that is the mission that has begun from the beginning of time that the Father has in creation 
and in reconciliation. It is the reconciling of us to him so that we may spend eternity in beatitude. And that mission was carried out in preparatory ways we find in the Old Testament. It was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus was sent. The word mission means sent. Jesus was sent to earth to merit salvation for all of us. And then that same mission is continued with the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and comes down to us. And we participate in part of that mission. This isn't my mission. This isn't your mission. This is Jesus' mission for the world. Why? Because Jesus is desperately in love with us. And he longs for nothing more than for people to come to know him, to love him, to be with him. He desires to pour his life out into them and open up for them the gates of heaven. And he's included you in that to bring the good news to all those that we meet. So the call to evangelize is for us and for the Christian. Now, why does any of this matter? I've I've got about 10 more minutes, about eight more minutes, and then I'll be done. Why does any of this matter? It matters because something has gone wrong. You know, it's said that in our day, we've lost the sense of sin. You have to be awfully blind and stupid to have fully lost the sense of sin. Because it's everywhere. Now, it's not, you know, don't get me wrong, we're going to get to the good news, okay? We're getting there. But we have to start with the bad news, that something has gone wrong. You know, we just commemorated the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. If you think that we're all just angels walking around, then you haven't read any history. All of us, all of us, have been wounded by others. You have been betrayed. You have been insulted. You have been slandered. You have had trusts broken. People have said mean and nasty things to you. People have done mean and nasty and wicked and evil things. Every person here has experienced that. And most of you probably have done similar things to others. All of us have done evil in our life. And all of us have experienced it. Some of us more greatly than others. But we look out, in Canada, one in three children is slaughtered before they're born. In Canada now, anybody over the age of 18 that is depressed can go to a doctor and the doctor will kill them for them. There's just, you know, we, we, we sterilize these things, we don't see them. But John Paul II called our culture a culture of death. We have to come to face-to-face with that. We have to come face-to-face with the reality that there is sin in the world. C.S. Lewis said, fallen man, he means men and women, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. And in some ways, each of us have rebelled against God, who had this this plan for us that was so good, so beautiful, it was beyond our imaginings. And we have chosen bondage and slavery instead. That's what sin does. Sin is bondage. Ask the alcoholic, are they free? Ask the person addicted to pornography, are they free? Ask the person that just can't stop gossiping if they are free. Ask the miser if they are free. Jesus wants to set us free. And all of us, and you know, I'm not saying we're all axe murderers. I'm not trying to say that. 
But if we examine our own heart, there is areas of our life where we are in bondage to sin. And Jesus, he wants to forgive you. We know that. But I feel like it's much deeper than that. He doesn't just want to forgive us. He wants to liberate us. He wants us to have the freedom of the children of God. Remember, Francis said that we have sin, sorrow, inner emptiness, and loneliness. Jesus wants to remedy that. He doesn't just want to pretend, okay, you sin, okay, I forgive you, it's all good. He wants to transform you. He wants to, the church would say, he wants to sanctify you. He wants to make you holy. And to be holy means to have his holiness within us. St. Paul said, it's no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives within me. So something has gone wrong, and Jesus has come. That's the the fundamental question that we need to, that we wrestle with, I think, in the church today, is why did Jesus come? Did he come to heal the sick? Yeah. Did he come to perform miracles? Yeah. Did he come to, you know, call out the powerful and the corrupt? Yeah. Did he come to be a good moral teacher? Yeah. He did all those things. He kind of came for those. Jesus came fundamentally to do battle because he wanted to save us. He wanted to liberate us. He wanted to free us. He wanted to save us. He wants you to experience the fullness of joy in your life. So Jesus has this mission and the mission has you as its aim. Jesus dies for you. And then he lets us, he lets you, he lets me participate in his mission of taking this good news into the world. So that every man, woman, and child alive today could experience freedom from the bondage of sin and the ineffable joy of communion with the God that loves us. Two years ago, I was at a conference and the speaker his uh, daughter was pregnant. And so there was a baby shower for the mother. And he heard about it. He heard the date. He heard the time. And he, so he showed up. Now, baby showers aren't for men. They're for women. So he was the only guy there. But he was the grandpa, so they kind of gave him, you know, literally the, grand, literally the grandfather clause. And what they did at this shower was they had the little baby jumpers. And they all had, like, markers. And they could basically color on and draw and write on these little onesies for the child. And he wrote on that, you are perfectly loved. I remember it struck me. Imagine if we believed that. You know, we hear, we hear, we hear, we know God loves us, right? But I don't just mean up here. I mean like in the very depth of our heart. That God loves you perfectly. Jesus wants the whole world to know that.